0: And we're going to look at America's most popular Bible verse amongst other things this morning. And I'm thinking about Matthew 7. Yeah, okay David, I've got it here if I can make my mouse work. Thank you. Good. Yeah, Matthew 7.1 which in the King James reads Judge not that ye... Be not judged. And in the New American Standard Bible, which is my personal favorite translation, Matthew 7, 1 reads, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. So the essence is clear. We're not supposed to judge. And you will hear this verse, Sherry, on big-time TV programs, radio talk shows, social media, all over the Internet and in real-life, real-time conversations on university campuses, including Cameron University-Duncan. And it will be used by people who see it as a rhetorical hammer to beat down Christians and to silence us, to stop any and all moral value judgments from being uh, described, except perhaps for Islamophobia, which is the one thing we agree is a terrible evil. And I would agree with that, I would say here's the facts. There are 1.6 billion people who according to religious study scholars who are basically sociologists who study religion who may know not know anything about theology or exegesis. But according to them, there's 1.6 billion, okay Betty, with a B, that's a thousand million. There are 1.6 billion people who embrace the religion of Islam. According to Dr. Pat Kate, a sociologist who lived in the Arab world for 30 years, only about 5% of all Muslims are violent Fundamentalists. So that's that's good news. There's only 5% that uh, would be happy to blow you up to kill you or a Jew or anybody who doesn't agree with their version of Islam, including many, 95% of the other Muslims, basically. That's the good news. It's only 5%. The bad news is, when you're starting with 1.6 billion, you're talking about 80 million people. Uh, there are no Methodist suicide bombers. There are no Lutheran suicide bombers. There are some violent fundamentalist islamic suicide bombers the good news about the 80 million is while they all have motive very few have means or opportunity but that is a problem but that's the one thing i think we all agree is an evil to paint all muslims based on that and i would agree with that but here's how it works in our culture hey you christians stop making moral value judgments about sexual morality how dare you jesus said don't judge hey you christian Stop making moral value judgments about life in the womb. Forget the biology. Forget the science. Um, why would you possibly judge that as wrong? Hey, Christians, stop making moral value judgments about marriage and what it is and what it might not be. Jesus says don't judge right there in your Bible. Sit down, shut up, end of discussion. And you know what? That sounds like they've got a point, Lori. I mean, Jesus does say don't judge here. Those are his words. This is not uh, Pee Wee Herman speaking. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, what did he mean by those words in that context? And I think it's easy to find out if you read the next couple of verses. Uh, I think we could all agree the word bad basically means not good or improper, incorrect, something like that. Except in certain contexts, I could say, and I'm not a car guy, so I don't lust over cars like this. I really don't. But That's a 2018 Corvette Stingray. And I could say, that's a bad car. <laughs> now what does bad mean, Jack? Bad means wrong, bad, incorrect, proper, improper, right? But there, what does bad mean? It's really good, really cool. Context always tells you what things mean, whatever language you're using. Coffee with Jesus. Here's the guy talking to the Lord Jesus hypothetically. Judge not lest ye be judged is my motto. Too many of your people, this guy's saying to the Lord Jesus, forget that verse to which the Lord says, and too many people who aren't mine take that verse out of context to judge those who are. <laughs> uh, for those who say there are absolutely no absolutes, I would say, oh, how about that one? To those who say judge not because you're defining sexual morality based on Scripture or the deity of Christ as an unnegotiable doctrine based on Scripture, when they say don't judge, they're judging us. Jesus is saying judge righteously when you do judge. Don't judge hypercritically when you do judge. And we all have to make moral value judgments all the time. Are you saying we cannot distinguish between child nurturers and child molesters? Can you live in a world like this and not make moral judgments all the time? But you have to remember you are your number one spiritual science project, even though it's much more fun to do spiritual surgery on everybody else. But he's saying, do not, don't judge righteously. Don't judge like the Pharisees do. They're hypercritical and they're hypocritical. And that's what he's saying in context, just like that's a bad car doesn't mean bad dictionary definition. It actually means good. So we're going to look at this verse. America's favorite Bible verse in context. And we'll show you rather than a categorical denial of the right to make value judgments, he's telling us make righteous value judgments. Don't be hypercritical. Don't be hypocritical when you do and you must make moral value judgments when you live in a fallen world that I personally contribute to and you do too. Let's pray that we'll be teachable to this portion of very important statement here because you're going to hear it used all the time, um, let's pray for those who protect and serve us, including these great military people and so many others, uh, law enforcement, peace officers, and also uh, our firefighters, okay, and uh, Lloyd, would you, uh, Davis, would you lead us in prayer in that direction? Okay, let's warm up our capacity for abstract thought, here's a guy making a presentation on visualization, your key to success, see yourself as making the putt, making the sale. Doing the right thing, getting good results. If you find it difficult to picture yourself as a success, and some of us do, just imagine everybody else as a failure. <laughs> That's so much easier, right? Um, I'd like you to do a presentation on business ethics in like five minutes. Is the way they do it to you? You know, sometimes when the Kiwanis Club has a real speaker organized, or some of the civic clubs have a real speaker lined up. And at the last minute, they can't make it. They will call certain people and say, Hey, can you, can you speak here in 15 minutes? Uh, we, we had a real speaker, but she can't be here. Uh, I, I like you to do a presentation on business ethics. Uh, if you don't have time to prepare something, just steal it off the internet. Finally, hold your applause. This is Horace Mann, young boy comes to the teacher. I don't have my homework. My dog deleted it. Now, Ethan and Jack, in earlier generations, people would come to school and say, my dog ate my homework, but now it's my dog deleted my homework, okay? Life of Christ A through Z, four Gospels, one Savior, 26 major events, real places, real people, real events in real-time space. A has two parts, angels announce, the supernormal pregnancy of John the Baptist, and he wasn't a Baptist, he was a Jewish prophet, to his father, they were too old to have babies, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and then to Mary, who's a virgin, um, in Nazareth. So we're near Jerusalem for John the Baptist's announcement, we're in Nazareth for Mary's annunciation. B, birth in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, and in 700 B.C., The prophet Micah said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, even though nothing exciting had happened there since David was there in 1000 BC. C, carpentry career in and around Nazareth. D, the beginning of the ministry, D and E really, dove descends at the Duncan. Jesus identifies with John the Baptist, the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah, identifies with his ministry. John says, I should be baptizing you. Jesus says, let me identify. We're going to pass the baton here as it were. D, the righteousness of Christ is declared. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Immediately after that, Jesus goes out and is tempted in the wilderness in which he demonstrates his righteousness. So he is good to go. To be the savior of the world because he is sinless and perfectly righteous. F. First followers, Jesus goes back after his temptations to where John the Baptist is doing his thing. And John the Baptist immediately is funneling his disciples to Jesus because that was his job. And those first five disciples were John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. They're all from Galilee spending vacation time with John the Baptist, the five disciples and Jesus. They go back to their region where they all live. Uh, Galilee, and we have Jesus turning water into wine. The the great guest at the wedding feast does his first miracle to keep a wedding reception going. So the idea that Jesus never smiled, never laughed, and sounded like Max von Sydow in the famous movie "The Greatest Story Ever Told" uh, was kind of a kind of a strict constructionist uh, view of of Jesus' personality. I think he said funny things all the time, like "They call you Listener." We both know you're kind of rough around the edges. Let's call you Peter, which means rocky, right? That's G. H, the first Passover during the ministry of Jesus, the major, next to the Day of Atonement, probably the most important annual feast in Judaism, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and finds the whole bureaucracy and the whole system of religion in Judaism has been corrupted by leaders who are making money and profaning it and harsh house cleaning happens at the beginning of his public ministry. While he's in Jerusalem, he has this incredible interview with Nicodemus, this old man who thinks he's going to earn his way to heaven, but he's not sure he's good enough. And Jesus says, that won't work. you got to be born again. You need a second birth. You need a spiritual birth through faith in me. It's not about keeping the rules. It's about trusting the Savior. Then Jesus goes right through the spiritual no man's land, according to Jewish religious thought of Samaria, where people that were different than them and inherently had spiritual cooties. So you had to avoid Samaria. Jesus goes right through the middle of it, and he tells the woman at the well, if she'd ask him as the Messiah for eternal life, he would give it to her as a free gift. He's kind of blowing religious thinking out of the water there, you might say. K, Jesus goes to Nazareth, teaches at the synagogue he grew up in. He was there every Sabbath day, and more than that, and he's asked as a great uh, honor to read from Scripture. And the bookmark in the scroll was Isaiah 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Reading from Isaiah 61. 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. To present the gospel to the poor. And he rolls it up and he says, Here's, here's the sermon today. Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I am the servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah. Climax by the 61 passage. And what happened? They were all thrilled. Hometown boy makes good, right? What'd they do? They tried to kill him. How dare you claim to be Messiah? You're not, you haven't even been to seminary, right? Kin kick out. So rather than bumping into other tecton carpenters all day long in his ministry, he moves the center of his ministry from Nazareth to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. So he's bumping into fishermen, location lateral. And that brings us to M where we are and we'll finish M today, Lord willing. We look at marvelous messages, and as I've said many times, uh, Natalie, you read this basic message in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and in Luke 6, Matthew 7 says it was presented on a mountaintop, Luke 6 says it was presented on a flat piece of ground. Which one's right? They're both right. He would have presented this basic content hundreds of times because the essence of the Sermon on the Mount is to blow away the idea that anybody can be good enough to earn their way into heaven. You're going to have to depend on somebody paying your sin debt and trusting in him to go to heaven. And Sermon on the Mount is designed to be discipleship truth and totally convicting pre-evangelistic truth. Because if you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, you can't do this as a Christian. So how in the world can somebody who's unregenerate do it? You're going to need a salvation and righteousness greater than the Pharisees and the scribes had. So we are in Galilee, uh, somewhere on the slopes of Mount Maron. Next May we will be on the slopes of Mount Maron. Can you believe it? It's a real place. And we will see where Jesus gave that, the area. where They built a church exactly where it happened, right on the uh, uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, which isn't where the Sermon of the Mount happened. It happened on top of the mountain there, but uh, they built churches everywhere where these things might have happened. Okay, there's the list. There will be a test later. We're looking at M, right? The uh kind of an overarching biblical statement comes from John 1 about this whole series. In the beginning was the word. The word is, is logos in Greek. We get logic from it. And this is a title for Jesus in this context, the second person of the Trinity. And the word Jesus was with God the Father. So he's a different person than God the Father. And yet at the same time, the word was God in essence, in his attributes, Wendy. So we're saying you could read it this way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God the Father as a separate person. And the Word was deity, was fully equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And then verse 14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the second person of the Trinity, unbelievable, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, one person, two natures, the God man, the perfect, mediator between God and man, that the perfectly righteous life in our stead paid our sin debt on the cross rose again after predicting that would happen. And that's critical because a dead Savior is not going to get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one, Muhammad wasn't resurrected. Joseph Smith wasn't resurrected. The Buddha certainly wasn't resi- re- resurrected. I know where his collarbone is. It's in Mai, Thailand. I've been there. The resurrected Savior is the only one who can Now, we're going to say goodbye to the Sermon on the Mount today. So let me remind you how cool this is. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Notice the beginning of the sermon is just for John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel because Matthew tells you so. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, who he's going to address this pre-evangelism message primarily to once it gets going past the, the prologue he went up on the mountain and sat down which is the teaching position of Judaism and his disciples came to him and he says to them you're spiritual light your spiritual salt so be salty and be bright and when somebody says how dare you make moral value judgments Jesus said so you got to go be- you got to have something better than oh oh yeah i guess not judge not okay I'll back away you know you got to kindly and not hypocritically or hypocritically so actually he's talking about when you make moral value judgments, do it righteously. Don't do it hypercritically. Don't do it hypocritically. Jack, you need to know this because in high school people, if you dare to live a consistent Christian life, this is going to get thrown in your face sooner or later by kids, maybe even by teachers, by authority figures. Judge not lest you be judged. But again, can we really live in this world and not know bullies from heroes and not make that kind of determination? I mean, there's there's no way you can live that way. And realize when they say that to you, Jack, they're judging you for making moral value judgments. So you just kindly point things like that out, right? Now, the purpose statement of the Sermon on the Mount is found in 520, where he just flat says, you can't be good enough on your own to go to heaven. Because the Pharisees and the scribes were the most religiously righteous people externally that you can imagine, certainly in that culture and probably in all culture. He says, unless you've got a righteousness that exceeds that, Paul says, I've got a righteousness now, not of my own, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in Jesus as Savior. So that's what he found out. Now the body of the Sermon on the Mount is where we will finish today. We saw... Uh, 5.20, the most unreligious thing anybody's ever said, you've got to have better righteousness than the Pharisees to go to heaven. Two weeks ago, last week we looked at six one. What did it say? As you do your good works, do them for the right reason, or they're just bad good works. Anybody can crank out bad good works. That's behavior modification. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people to be noticed by them. you got to do the right thing for the right reasons, or it's not a good work, it's a bad good work. And now today we're going to look at seven one in the body. Don't judge, so that you will not be judged. Now notice the structure of this is important. This is not to wow you with a diagram; is to show you the way this thing is constructed. We saw a similar thing last week. Six one is the umbrella. Don't do your good works to impress other people, or it doesn't count. And that means you know when you uh, are giving and praying and fasting, do it for the right reason. Today. which is going to be quoted to you. In fact, they don't even quote the whole verse. They just say, don't judge or judge not, kind of thing. But verses 2-5 through tell you what he means by verse 1. Okay? And that's really important. Um, Let's say, I know you can picture this, Jeff. Let's say you've got, and your kids are a little older than this, but let's say you've got a first grader. Okay? And bedtime's always exciting, right? With first graders. So... You know, you're a good Christian parent. You, uh, you, if you're the husband, you watch your wife do all the work. If you're the wife, you do all the work. But you give them a bath and you clean them up and you put them in their, put their pajamas on them and you put them in the bed and you, you tuck them in and you pray with them and you sing with them and you kiss them and say good night. And then if you're the husband, you're sitting listening to all this. But the wife comes back into the uh, living room and now they're going to watch Monday night football or whatever they're going to watch. And two minutes later, guess what? The first grader walks in to the living room. And you say, hey, what's going on? I'm thirsty. <laughs> that sounds reasonable, okay? They do it every night, but, okay. You give them a little sip of water. You don't want them to be dehydrated, right? Put them back in bed, tuck them in, kiss them, walk out uh, to watch the rest of the football game. Two minutes later, guess what? Here he, Here she comes again. What's wrong? I'm hungry. Okay, well we just had snack, but we'll get a couple of goldfish for you. You know, high protein. <laughs> Give it to him. Put him back in bed. 2 minutes later. Here he comes. Here she comes again. Is it a she or a he? What do you want? Let's make it a she. Okay. Here she comes again. Mom, Dad says, what's going on? I'm cold. <laughs> okay. You go back turn the air conditioner down, put a little blanket, a thin blanket on them, and you say the words, don't get out of that bed again. And you leave the room, hoping she's going to respond. Now, what happens if three hours later everybody's in bed, everybody's asleep, and that little girl wakes up and sees for whatever reason, maybe bad wiring in the wall, the room's on fire? Well, I probably should get up and let mommy and daddy know the house is about to burn down. But mommy said, "Don't get out of the bed again." So I can't get out. Um, let's say nothing that violent and drastic. Let's say the next morning, time to get up and go to school. Mom says, "Time to get. Are you up yet?" She says, "No, I'm not going to get up. Why not? You said don't get out of the bed again." <laughs> Quite often. People in every language, in every culture, make absolute statements with understood and either expressed or unexpressed qualifications. When you say, don't get out of bed again, you mean because you've got an excuse to put off falling asleep. You don't mean if the house catches on fire, you lay there and watch it burn. You don't mean tomorrow morning when we've got to get up and go to school, you don't get out of bed. Of course, okay? Yeah, he says, don't judge, and then he immediately follows that absolute-sounding statement to qualify exactly what he means. He's saying, when you do make moral value judgments, and you've got to about yourself and others in a fallen world all the time, make sure you don't judge like the Pharisees do. They're hyper-picky, looking at their strengths against everybody else's weaknesses. That ain't fair. And worse, they're total hypocrites, They kind of define the rules in such a way that they actually think they can observe them, but it's all fake. It's all behavior modification, not a transformation. So what this verse is really saying in context, as we'll see, is don't judge others like the Pharisees. Don't be hyper picky with everybody else, but give yourself a pass. And don't be hypocritical. Deal with your own issues primarily. Some people are so happy, you know, One thing, I don't think I felt like this when I was just an average Christian, but once I became a professional Christian many years ago, I get no joy about hearing about some preacher across town or somewhere who's had a moral lapse, or has been stealing money from the church, or doing stuff that's illegal and moral. Uh, A lot of people seem to really dig that, including too many Christians. They just think that's the greatest thing in the world, maybe because it makes them feel better about themselves. I've been with ministers uh, at lunches and stuff. Did you hear about somebody who did this, that, and the other? And they kind of like to just happy that they got one less competition competitor out there. I mean, that never has turned my crank. I don't. I hate that stuff. I hate hearing it. Obviously, if they're molesting children or stealing money, they got to be stopped, and they should be. But I I, see there's no joy when I hear stuff like that. It's no, no. I have no relish for it. But the Pharisees just seem to delight in hyper-critically, hypocritically dissecting everybody else's problems, being oblivious to the fact they're about to lynch the Messiah, which is kind of what they end up doing, right? So, if you don't like diagrams, here's uh, another way to say that. Don't judge other people hypercritically, like the Pharisees or hypocritically. And... You know, just logically, based on the broad biblical context of doctrinal and moral right and wrong we learn in Scripture, we've got to make moral value adjustments all the time about ourselves and other people and the culture. Uh, one slide I found on the Internet, you think he means don't judge anything based on the moral script, commandments of Scripture, don't discriminate just war from unjust war, a hero from a bully, a child nurturer from a child molester. He couldn't have meant that. That's irrational. To see verse one, don't judge, so you won't be judged, as a prohibition against any and all moral values, ignores the biblical, broad biblical context, where, amongst other places, Zane Jesus says, "Do not judge." This is John seven twenty four. Do not judge. That sounds familiar, right? According to outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In one big way, Debbie Corbin can judge with righteous. Judgment, or Betty Donna can, can write, judge with righteous judgment, is not to be hyper-picky, pickier on everybody else than you are on yourself, because you've got to be your number one spiritual science project, and hypocritically, uh, when you kind of rationalize stuff you're doing, but you're really hard on it, somebody else is doing the same thing, maybe not even as badly uh, as you are. So it ignores the broad biblical context there. The immediate context, look at this. In the way you judge... You're going to be judged by God. That is, by your standard of measure, how picky, how unrealistic you are on everybody else, God's going to give you a stricter judgment. Yeah, we are judged according to our work. We're saved by grace through faith apart from works, but the set of believers will be judged for the fruit of our salvation. And if you're really picking everybody else, God can get really picky with you. You don't want to do that to yourself. Now, it's also true that, uh, for instance... I'm really picky on speech outlines at Cameron University Duncan. Uh, we have full sentence outlines. We get some really weird sentence structure. You think my stuff's long, you gotta read some of the stuff that gets turned in there. It's craziness, you know? But, and I I emphasize that. I emphasize that so so much that occasionally when I crank out example outlines, if I mispunctuate something or misspell a word, everybody notices. Because I'm preaching, it's gotta be pristine. It's gotta be right. And I throw something up there and I misspell McCoy or something. I had a guy not capitalize his last name. And I thought, okay, maybe this is like Prince, you know, who went from Prince to just a, a symbol for a while, the artist formerly known as Prince. Maybe he's kind of, you know, a rap artist or something, uh, or maybe some kind of actor or something. And I say, hey, you gotta start capitalizing the first letter in your last name. Oh, okay. You know, I went, really? I also had a guy, I had a guy once misspell his name. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you look at the role you get from uh, the school, and you call a role for the first couple of weeks learn their names, and I noticed after a couple of weeks that the way they spelled his name on the official documentation from the school, and the way he was spelling his name, I think it had an E on the end of it, uh, in the official paperwork. He was not putting the E on the end of it on the quizzes every day, and I finally noticed that. And I just figured he knew what his name was, right? Which is a bad assumption. So when I, when I noticed that, I said, hey Jade, I'm really sorry it wasn't Jade. You can't use their names anymore, that's a purple violation. Uh, my attorney said I could use this, however, if I kept it generic and used Jade instead of Faye. No, I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. I said, hey, I just, hey Jade, I'm sorry man, I didn't say that school made me do it. I don't blame everybody for my mistakes. It's just my mistake, I don't have to excuse it. Uh, I, I just admit it. Hey, I'm sorry I misspelled your name, you know, on the stuff I've been writing. Uh, and he said, no, no, that's, that's, that's actually, I was, I was wrong there. I didn't put the E on the end of it. I went, okay. <laughs> so this is going to be fun. <laughs> but yeah, the sure, the pickier you are with other people, the pickier they're going to tend to be with you. But that's not what Jesus is primarily concerned about here. He's talking about the way God, the he looks at your judgment, right? Uh, so, Judge not lest you be judged. Don't be hypocritical. And then he says, uh, so why, you hypocrites, why do the Pharisees look at the little tiny issue in somebody else's life and ignore the, these big issues in their life? Why do you look at the little speck in somebody's eye when you got a telephone pole sticking out of yours? You know, deal with that one first. And then he says, after you kind of take the telephone pole out of your eye, then you will be seen clearly to do whatever moral value judgment your friend maybe wants you to uh, conduct on his life, right? So that's the big statement here. That's the umbrella. That's the overarching idea. I call that an umbrella statement. He's not saying don't make any righteous value judgments. He's talking about how to avoid making unrighteous value judgments, being hyper-picky, picky, 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 right? Um, That's why I believe in long engagements. You don't want to marry somebody. You need to change somebody who's hyper-critical, you know? because uh, that's a tough way to live. Um, and it won't be hypocritical either. This is kind of like Philippians 4.8. You know, sometimes people, Christians who should know better, I mean, people in ministry, misread whole Bible verses. Uh, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, if there's anything of excellence, worthy of praise, think on these things. And I've heard big-time preachers on the radio say that means we should only think uh, about true things, honorable things, righteous things, pure things, lovely things? We're not supposed to judge. Uh, is it okay for Christians to think about drunk driving as a problem in our culture? Is it okay for us to think about drunk? Is drunk driving true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellent, worthy of praise? Say no. It's not. So we're not supposed to think about stuff like that, right? I guess we'll just let the pagans make the rules, right? That's not talking about what you can think about. It's talking about how you should think about everything you think about. You should think about your own issues, and you got them, and other people's issues when you need to, including drunk driving, in true, honorable, right, pure categories, lovely, good, excellent, praiseworthy from God's point of view categories, which is, it's that's a terrible thing. Don't do it. You know, it's against the law for a reason kind of thing, right? Um, yeah, um, Carol's not here today, but uh, I was going to tell her it's a good thing it's okay for Christians to make righteous value judgments, because if you want to serve as a mentor uh, before you're allowed to do that, link one mentors, you have to submit to a background, criminal background check, and boy, I sweated mine out, man, that was a scary two weeks waiting for the results to come back, but I passed, I passed, it was great. Uh, I've been a mentor long enough. We used to have to go into the belly of the of the jail, under <laughs> the courthouse, to get to the place where they did this, and all the criminals are going to look at you. Yeah, future mentor, I'll get you. You know, um, yeah. So uh, yeah, of course you got to make value adjustments. You don't want somebody who's got improper motives becoming a mentor to become one if you can possibly avoid it. Right now, here's the thing. Verses 2 through 5 are the key to understanding verse 1. He's not saying don't make any more value adjustments, which is absurd biblically, generally, absurd logically. And he tells you, here's what I mean by that. Don't judge other people like the Pharisees do. They're always picky, picky, picky on the minor things. You know, I always say I'm not important enough to make a big deal about every little thing. And everybody loves me to say that. Yeah, you're right, Brad, you're not important enough to do that. But when I say that, I mean you're not important enough to make a big deal about every little thing. When Peter says, love smothers a multitude of transgressions, that's not you covering up child molesting or financial malfeasance in a ministry. That's talking about just little things. I don't like my hairline either, okay? Now, the elders have been, you know, threatening to get me a toupee, I was thinking about the hair club, uh, for men, but, you know, I don't really want to be a member of any club like that, that would allow someone like me to be a member. So that's just me, you know? <laughs> Plus it's expensive. It's, uh, I was reading about just some research, you know. You don't just go once, pay them X number of dollars, and they put this high-tech wig on your head. You have to pay them monthly dues, cause it's a club, and only their people can cut your hair. And I'm, I reluctantly pay $12 for a haircut a couple times a year at the, uh, Highway barbershop on 81. That's a lot of money for somebody who's picky like me with money. I'm, I'm like, uh, my wife says I'm tight. I think I'm frugal. I'm Scotch Irish, you know. Uh, but, uh, these haircuts, according to the internet, it's going on one website, somebody with a grievance, right? So it's a good site. Uh, it costs 150 to $200 to get them to cut your hair. Because they you can't actually hit the, if you hit the kind of the wire mesh there, you know, it, it's not good, you know. Uh, I, you can swim, you can swim, but very carefully. <laughs> the commercial shows them swimming, but they never put their head on the water. But anyway, you know the things I think about, okay? In the way you judge, you will be judged by God, and by your, that is by your standard of measure. You want to be picky, picky, picky? God can get real picky. Uh, in dental school, I remember once, you know, in dental school, you, you gotta get your own patients. You gotta recruit your own patients. I mean, Debbie and Dale know that, Carla knows that. We've got two esteemed dentists that are alumni of, uh, this church and then me who dropped out of dental school for various reasons. Uh, they did a criminal background check. No, they didn't do that. That's not the reason. My, my eye problem. But, um, we were being told about how, before we went to clinic the first time, about how to get our patients and this and that and we got certain things you gotta do and you gotta get, you know, 15 first class amalgams and 10 second class and all this other stuff and bridges and and, and, uh, dentures and that whole thing. And somebody said, well, what if some of my volunteers, like my mom, don't have anything, any any need for any dental work? And this guy, this old professor says, you show me anybody and I can find something they're going to (laughs) need. And I went, I'm in the wrong profession. (laughs) This is terrible. Yeah, pull the tooth. You know, she doesn't need it. (laughs) I mean, oh my goodness. The Pharisees were like that. They spent their whole day convincing themselves they were good enough to go to heaven because they criticized, micromanaged everybody else. And they were constantly putting everybody else down to build themselves up. we got to remember when we are trying to make righteous moral value judgments, and you're going to have to do it regularly, we got to remember our own personal accountability before God. Sometimes we can demand more of others than we expect of ourselves. There's a thing in communication theory, it's called the attribution theory. We tend to attribute our successes based on stable internal factors in ourselves. So of course I deserve that award. Of course I deserve that accolade. Of course I deserve all this good stuff I'm coming, because it's all about me. I deserve it. But we tend to explain away our weaknesses to outside forces out beyond our control. Well, I've made a D on that test, but it's only because the teacher's too picky. Or the teacher is unfair, or the teacher didn't cover the material well enough. Uh, of course, my kid got arrested, but it's only because the police, you know, are a bunch of hypocrites and they're, you know, out of control. Okay, if he kid gets arrested, you better look at that. It'd be a problem. You know, um, beware of that because in the same way you judge others, God's going to judge you. Now, this is not about heaven and hell. We're not saved by works. We're saved for good works, and Jesus expects us to let our light shine. But not to toot our own horn, right? And so Jesus is going to evaluate the fruits of every Christian's life in this room for reward, commendation, letter jackets, medal kind of things, and boy, it's going to be great. But to the, but do you really want Jesus to be hypercritical on you? He's going to be looking what you did and why you did it, and he's saying here, the pickier you are on everybody else, the pickier, sure, other people will probably be with you, but the pickier God's going to be. You know, there are levels of punishment in hell. Hitler and the, the, the guy who's a good Joe Six Pack but just couldn't accept Jesus as a Savior, that's Joe Sixpack, Hitler's down there. Now David Hume, of course, and he disproved the existence of God because he famously said in 1776, right before he died, over in the old country, if God is all good, he wouldn't allow evil. And if God was all powerful, he could do something about evil. But evil exists, it's all over the place, so there can't be no all good, all powerful God. It could be all good but not powerful, it could be all powerful but not good, but there is no all good, all powerful God. That sounds like a pretty good argument, except it's got a hidden premise. This way I'll be stated. If God's all good, He wants to defeat evil. He might even give us moral value judgments in scripture, doctrinally and morally, so we can know what's right and wrong. If God's all good, He wants to defeat evil. If God's all powerful, He can hasn't been defeated yet, so guess what? He's not done with his purposes for allowing angels and human beings to make real choices, which means evil is going to be there. And when he's done with his purposes, he's going to get us to the best of all possible worlds. You can read about it in Revelation 21 22. The down payment was the Messiah coming as lamb before lion and bringing in the perfect world to pay our redemption. So I look at evil, the problem of evil. You can't even have evil unless you've got a uh, transcendent, Moral being that gives you a standard; otherwise, you're just making up good and bad anyway. Then it's just social constructs. But the fact, the existence of evil demands an all good, all powerful God who's going to end it. And that's what we're looking for. That's our hope. That's what we're anticipating in faith. You know, Revelation 21:22. So all the folks we miss, and you know, the good news is we've got new bricks out there. The bad news is we've got that many more people who great, who are great TBFers who are no longer with us physically, right? But we're going to see him again. We're going to see him be with them forever. Okay? After about five seconds in eternity, if that's not an oxymoron, uh all this the veil and and the, the tears we go through will be in much better perspective. Okay? Let's look at verses three through five. Don't be hyper picky, don't be hypocritical like the Pharisees. Why do you look at the speck, the little issue in your brother's eye, and make a huge deal about it, and don't notice your basic big issues? You've got in your life the the log, the telephone pole sticking out of your eye. How can you say? How hey, can it be this hypocritical? And not notice. Let me take the speck out of your eye, brother. Well, you've got a telephone pole sticking out of yours. Now, Jack, we, guess what? We got a picture of this. This is not a photograph. It's an artist reconstruction. That's kind of what it looked like. Okay. You got a guy who says, "Dude, I think I got something in my eye. A little teeny weeny thing." Here's a guy with a telephone pole. Sticking out of his, saying, here, let me help you. I'll get it out. When we make moral value judgments, we've got to remember our own personal weaknesses, our own issues. That should temper it. That should humble us. Uh, and the fact that as much fun as being a self-appointed spiritual food inspector, a church lady is, and it is fun. i got to admit, there's a real temptation there, especially when you're a professional Christian. You know, you lay people. I get paid to be good. You lay people are good for Nothing. You don't get paid like we do. Like me and James, we're paid to be good. Uh, as I like to say, and this is true, God's intent is for each one of us to make our own sweet cells our number one spiritual science project. And that's essentially a full-time job. That'll slow you down quite a bit. Um, I like this cartoon. One thing I don't like about Christianity, this is one, there are many things, this guy, is that Christians are so judgmental even though Jesus said not to judge anyone ever, He didn't say that, but now this is a well-informed Christian. Good. He, he's, he listens to Pastor Brad. He probably takes notes. Actually, that's not what Jesus said. You're right. He was warning against judging hypocritically. Uh, it's easy to see, and that's easy to see if you read the whole passage, which we just did, verses two, three, four, five. Uh, and by the way, what does verse 6 say? Do not give what's holy to dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine. How are you going to figure out who the dogs and the swine are? You've got to make more value judgments, don't you, Jan? People who are going to just use this against you to blaspheme better, you're not under any obligation to give it to somebody who's re- just rejecting it and just going to distort it, right? Jesus himself teaches in parables to reveal to the folks who want to understand, to conceal for the ones who are going to distort it and mis- misuse it. Uh, it's easy to see that Jesus was saying judge righteously, not hypercritically, not hypocritically, if you read just the, all five verses in context in Matthew 7. He was teaching against hypocrisy by saying we should not hold others to standards we ourselves don't live up to. Then this guy comes back, and this is a str- this is strong, man. Even so, I still say Christians are way too judgmental. He's judging us for being too judgmental based on a misunderstanding of what Jesus said. And the guy says, "Yeah, exactly that. I mean, I got there's nothing I can say. <laughs> uh, you don't get it, do you? You don't want to get it. And that's quite often true. All right, take this to heart. In light of the greatness of God's grace in saving us, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, believers in Jesus should be gracious people. We ought to be more gracious to people than they deserve. Now, you can't paper over sexual scandal in the church or in people's lives that are you know, flaunting God's uh, uh, positions and moral uh, values. You can't paper over James is stealing money from the box or I'm stealing money from the box or misusing church funds or um, doing something illegal or immoral. You, you can't. That doesn't mean smother multiple transgressions doesn't mean felonies, you know. you got to deal with that. But in general, we ought to be more gracious than people deserve, slow to take offense, quick to forgive. Um, the Word says in Proverbs and First Peter, love smothers a multitude of small things, small little things that you could make a big deal out of. It doesn't pile on or fan flames. But a lot of Christians, the church lady people love to fan the flames. Let me tell you what Steve Skinner said. Hey, come here. we got to talk. I want to talk to you about Jan Palovic. When you do that to me, I say, have you talked to Jan Palovic yet? No go talk to her. Uh if it's so horrible, you can't talk to her alone. I will reluctantly go, but I don't want to. You know, you ought to do it yourself. And it, you know, if you find out she was colluding with the Russians and she's trying to, you know, subvert Pastor Brad and and, and uh, Youth Minister James, then yeah, I'll go back. I'll talk to her too at that point, you know. But she's not going to do that. Uh However, in a fallen world in which we make major contributions and I know I do, Unfortunately, we must make righteous, godly, moral value adjustments all the time, especially in high school, right, or middle school. I'm not in middle school, but um, I was. We called it junior high at the time. And yet we must do the right thing the right way, not be hypercritical or hypocritical. When we make moral value adjustments about others, we should be careful to avoid being hyper or hypocritical. Rather than looking like self-righteous church ladies, and I get that's why a lot of people don't like Christianity because they think we're all like that. Uh, believers should look more like the Lord Jesus Christ in interacting with people with moral, theological, or moral uh, major moral issues. Woman at the well, woman caught in adultery. Uh, you think that he was justifying adultery or sexual sin in a way, but he was very kind, right? Uh, it's hard for me to to disagree without becoming disagreeable. I tend to be sarcastic because I think I, I'm sarcastic because my dad was always sarcastic. when well, I'm not I'm not blaming him so much, but it, it always worked. It always worked with me when he got sarcastic with me and he did a lot. I immediately listened to what he said. and I kind of reacted to it. So I, in the back of my mind, I think this worked for me, so I'll do it. Sometimes college students don't realize you're kidding. You know that uh, that section of the movie Patton. Where, you know, he said something like, uh, you know, if you guys don't get squared away, I'm going to skin you, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to run you out of the army. And one of his assistants after that famous speech, he says, hey, they don't know that you're exaggerating. They don't know you were kind of being sarcastic. Oh, they don't understand that? Okay, I guess because they all thought they were going to be shipped home, you know, which he couldn't really send the whole fifth army home. But it would have been harder than invading Germany, right? Let me end with this. The application of this teaching, when we do have to make moral value judgments, especially when it's have to deal with somebody personally about it, we should do it reluctantly, with great humility. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn in this summit on the mount. And that doesn't primarily mean widows and orphans mourning about that, even though you should. And God will help you through that. And it's a bad place to be. He's talking about rather than seeing sin in us and around us as primarily bad, and it is, we ought to mainly see it as sad. That's what, when, when I have somebody cheat at Cameron University and I've had people cheat on like final exams, uh, it makes me ma- righteous, righteously indignant, but I'm mainly just sad. we got to go through all this stuff with this person, you know, and basically kick them out of school. I mean, it just makes me sad to be in that situation. I kind of resent being put in that position, but it can happen. And I think that's the way we ought to approach this. Sometimes we are just can't wait to denounce the culture. Just can't wait. We're just with glee. We want to tell, talk about how bad the culture is, and it is bad. and It's getting worse all the time. But that should make us primarily sad. We ought to have broken hearts as we deal with these kind of issues, kind of the way that uh, Jesus was. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Well, I do pray you would give uh, the believers in this room uh, a spirit of love for people and even for our culture made up of people that allows us to righteously, in love, with humility, make godly, righteous, moral value judgments. Uh, help us to be able to be, disagree without being personally disagreeable, without compromise, uh, help us to realize we can't expect people in this culture to play by our rules. Um, help us not to be shocked or shook by that. Help us to realize that this verse that is commanding us to make righteous moral value judgments is going to be used to try to stop us from making any moral value judgments and help us to know enough about the Scripture to realize that's a, uh, a non-starter. It's not true. And I pray that our Lord Jesus would be glorified as he empowers us to do this and as we do it according to your will and your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.